0: Hey there, it's Tim, and this is Death of a Thousand Cuts. As you well know, you don't need me to tell you that. But I'm going to tell you anyway. I don't even know why I was doing. I'm so used to recording these these intros uh, at night when my daughter's asleep in the next room that I forgot that I'm recording this in the day, and so I don't have to. Hello. Uh, I guess I just like doing that voice. It sounds intimate in a, a non But It's a bit bit creepy. I was going to say non-sexual. It's definitely non-sexual, but something could be non-sexual. This is not how I planned to open this episode. So what I'm basically trying to say is, hi, I don't forget the other stuff that I said. I suppose I could edit this out. Um, If you're hearing it, then I haven't bothered uh, because I wanted to get on with some writing. But welcome, (laughs) if if you haven't run away already. Um, This is another one of my chats with the author Kirsty logan who i've wanted to speak to for a long time and she's been away on writing retreat not deliberately to avoid me um just because she wanted to because she was writing uh but kind of we've been kind of going back and forth for a little while and finally we got to get together and have a chat and she was her first novel um is called the it, her debut is called The Grace Keepers. and it came out around about the sa- same time as my first novel The Honors so and it's and it's and it's fantastical and really kind of like rich and dreamy and we talk about it a bit and she's got she got like an amazing pull quote from Ursula Le Guin on the front of the book who's like my favourite author. So immediately I was like, okay, I'm going to like this. And of course I did. Uh, But we talk a bit about fantasy. We talk about niches. We talk about fairy tales. She's also put out a collection of short stories called The Rental Heart and Other Fairy Tales. She's been nominated for and also won various prizes. She talks a little bit about, you know, writing stuff that might be weird, might be niche. She talks a little bit about Writing, it, what what a fairy tale is, you know, and how you start to engage with those, and how you write them in a way that's also true to your own life, and, and and we just we just have like a good old gab as well. That's the other thing, is I really felt like talking to talking to Kirsty. It's quite like you know, I and I sometimes get to the end of interviews and have this kind of like vulnerability hangover, where I realise I've just been, just feels like I've had like a really nice natter on a phone call. With a friend who I haven't seen in a while. Now, in a lot of cases, including this one, it's someone who I've never met before, and have and, and and only know through their work, and that makes me really happy to think of that. Of course, they may get off the call and think, "God, well, that was uh, interesting." He's a bit much, but it was lovely talking to Kirsty, and I had a really and, and just. I, she actually I don't want to do her down by saying oh it, what a lovely person also really insightful and acute and penetrating and exact and very funny and self-effacing but also just like brilliant and um you know it just I just felt after the conversation and listening to it back back through it when I was doing some light edits I, I, j- I just feel like someone's put an electrical current through my brain and i felt like about 20% more awake and 20% smarter just from listening to her talk which is which is a which is a great quality for someone to have and now you get to uh exploit her words in exactly the same way by listening to that chat but before you do just to remind you if you enjoy today's show and the work that i do on this podcast which i love doing but does take a lot of time um is genuinely i hope it comes across but it's genuinely one of the one of the great joys and unexpected pleasures in my life is doing this podcast i love it uh does take a lot of time though uh so if you'd like to support it then please consider buying my book the honors my novel the honors Of course my uh, new novel the Ice House is coming out next year but in the meantime uh, if you would like to support me by getting the honors I, I would I, it's available online it's available in an ebook it's available in audiobook format any of those from wherever you want to get it that's most convenient to you um, I'd really appreciate that and I'd love to hear what you think about it if you read it and if you have read it, Uh, whatever you thought of it, it would help me a huge amount if you went on to Amazon and left a review or left a review wherever. Um, Though leaving reviews so other people can see the work and see that other people have read it and make an informed decision um, is a massive thing that you can do for authors that won't cost you anything. So I'd really appreciate that and thank you to all of those of you who've treated yourself to a copy and who've got back to me letting you know letting me know what they thought of it or have left reviews or have sort of shared their photographs of the book I really really appreciate it I j- sincerely do um also buy the books of um the authors that we have on this show if any of them sound like the, your cup of tea you know we all we all rely on basically people picking up our books reading them and enthusing about them. And I, you might not realise how much power you have as a reader to to, to, change, to change people's lives. I mean, it's no it's no smaller than that. The fact that people buy my books are what allow me to do this now. They are what allow me to sit down and have an idea for a story and write it down and, that, and this be my life. And it's such a joy. And it's only because of people making the decision I'm going to I'm going to have a read of this. I'm going to try it out. I'm going to check it out from the library or I'm going to buy it or whatever. So yeah, do that. And finally, if you want to help me with like covering the costs of hosting this podcast on SoundCloud and hosting my website on WordPress um, and do, doing all the other sundry costs that that come with uh, running and organising and putting together... A podcast then in the show next to this episode there's just a link to my coffee page and also if you go on my website there'll be a little link on the right there's like three in the right hand column. There's contact me, which I I would love to hear from you, by the way. And if you've got any ideas or about future episodes or you've got questions that you'd like me to answer in a future episode, or you just want to say hello and let me know how you're getting on with your writing. I'd love to hear from you. And I get letters. I get emails every fucking day now. It's it's absolutely bananas. And and I don't have time to answer all of them. Although sometimes I do if I just happen to be my computer and one pops up. But I'm I read every single one and I'm really really appreciative for all of them. Uh even the ones telling me stuff that I'm doing wrong or words I've mispronounced it's fine. I I I my ego is uh shrinking by the day and I hope that I'm not ever too big to accept ways that I can can get better and improve this for you so thank you. Uh, but yeah, you could, there's a little link that just says buy me a coffee rather presumptuously and you can click that and then there's a little page that you can just like with two cl- clips, you can, two clicks, you can drop me a few beans and, uh, that helps. Well, that's the reason I can do this is because people have supported it and I'm hugely grateful for it. Right. No more ado. I think we've had quite enough of ado for one day. So without further ado, here's me chatting to and uh, learning from Kirsty Logan. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers and readers and anyone who likes to get close to books and poke their noses into them and and use them to to briefly forget this terrible, wonderful, amazing and uh, weird world that we live in and sidestep into other ones. Today I'm genuinely thrilled to be chatting to author Kirsty Logan. How are you, Kirsty? I am great. How are you? I'm super, super well. I'm a little bit sweaty for this late in the year. I feel like we're only <laughs> like three weeks off the beginning of Christmas jumper season.
1: Don't say it. Don't say the
0: C word. I'm sorry. It's too early. Um I'm so excited. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, otherwise, I'm super, super great. And have you just come... Is it true or am
1: I uh, mistaken that you've just come back off a writing retreat? This is completely true. And everything I'm about to say is true, even though it sounds like it's from a fairy tale. I promise it's true. I just spent a month in a castle, which is... It's a genuine castle, it's like living in a National Trust house, and also it has got a separate library building up on a hill, which has got an orchard outside it, which is full of plum and apple trees, so what you can do is go and read some books, and then go outside, take some plums off the tree, eat them, Um, there might be deer going past, there might be some rabbits, honestly, I felt like I was in a film, it was incredible.
0: I would, I would. I That sounds so nice that I would become paranoid that some dark second <laughs> act was about to, to kick off.
1: I mean, it didn't while I was there, but maybe it'll come. <laughs> never and, say and, never. And, what, and and what we can I ask? What you were? Were you working on a particular thing there? Or? I was. I was starting a new book. So what I like to do, if if I can, um, is every September if possible I try and go away on a residency for a month um, and I either if I'm ready I start a new book or if not I kind of work further on a, whatever book I'm halfway through so I was starting a brand new novel uh, which I hope eventually will become my sixth book uh, so that's what I was doing. Oh,
0: crikey.
1: Yeah it was. Wow yeah that sounds so exciting
0: well hopefully we can kind of like wheel back round to a little bit of the things you got from that experience and about residencies stroke uh retreats uh in a little bit but first of all i just wanted to um ask a little bit about about you uh where i mean i I guess i guess i don't want to sort of steer you towards (laughs) self-mythologizing if you want that's absolutely fine um where do you come from and
1: how did you get here being an author such a big question um I mean, it's just the usual stuff, isn't it? Very bookish child, um, kind of difficult teen years, as most of us have, Um, and then always wanted to be a writer but didn't really think that I could. Like, I thought, people are writers but not people like me. And it was only really when I was in my early 20s that I started to think, well, actually, someone writes these books that are on the bookshelves, so why shouldn't I be one of those people That writes them, Um, so that's when I kind of started to take myself more seriously, and I started to write with an eye to being a kind of proper writer, and then it only took me another, nearly ten years (laughs) to actually have a book out. Um, So yeah, it was uh, on the one hand, I suppose it all happened very quickly, but on the other hand, it took a very very long time. But I mean, there's Mm. there's no kind of secret. I didn't. If if there's a secret key or a magic password I certainly didn't learn what it was it was just a case of you write something is quite bad you figure out what's bad about it you go back and write something slightly better and you just keep doing that until you're kind of a good enough quality that someone wants to publish it really.
0: Can you remember any of the f- sort of first books that really grabbed you you said you're quite a bookish child can you remember uh, anything from the time that sort of the first books that really resonated with you
1: yeah I mean I remember not surprisingly to anyone who's who's read anything that I've written I was a big kind of mythology and fairy tale nerd as a child I had lots of different books like that so my I wasn't brought up with any religion but my aunt uh, sorry my sorry my uncle and aunt were Buddhist my granny was Christian so they would give me these different books. So I had like books of Bible stories. I had books of Buddhist stories. I had. Um, They're so good. I, I so, more all of them were great. Yeah. Read the
0: Buddhists, like different Buddhist mythologies from like Theravada and Mahayana kind of. Uh, they're am- they're, am- they're so cool mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah no I loved them And I, well, I mean I had everything I had all the, the kind of classic fairy tales the the Grimm's and um, Hans Christian Andersen and I also had I really liked uh, ancient Egypt so I had a lot of the ancient Egyptian mythologies I liked all the Greek and Roman gods but what, what I think had a huge impact on me is that nobody told me that any of the stories were true so it wasn't like my uncle said here's a book of Buddhist stories these are true And my grand didn't say, here's a book of Bible stories. These are true. It was like all the stories were equal. So they were all presented to me as stories within all their wonder and glory. So it wasn't that these ones are true and these ones are just made up stories. It was just everything is a story. Everything is full of wonder and magic. And everything is as true as you want it to be. And that had a huge impact on me, actually, that kind of level playing field of story Um, And it kind of made me feel like these stories were mine in a way. They were mine to do whatever I wanted with. Um, And I I feel like that had a huge impact on me, that sense of ownership over a story, which I think we don't always get. And also there was a lot of content, particularly in the fairy tales and in the Bible stories, actually, content that I wasn't allowed to consume otherwise. So I wouldn't have been allowed to read a book that had lots of sex and death and violence in it. But yet, I was allowed to read mythology, (laughs) which is Uh. full of sex and death and violence. So that was quite good as well. It made me feel like I was reading something that I shouldn't really be allowed to read, which is always quite exciting for a child.
0: It's funny how presented in mythological or fantastical forms, I think that's one of the lovely subversive things about uh, fantasy is this idea that um it kind of disarms a lot of it kind of distracts a lot of the guards and it sneaks a lot through that we just I mean I remember my dad is one of the first books he got me reading was Struvelpater. His oh, God, know, grandmother yeah, was yeah. German. And so you know I'm seeing images of people having their thumbs hacked off, mm-hmm. people being drowned and People burning alive <laughs> in these beautiful kind of like turn of the century woodcuts, uh, but I never, never occurred. It didn't occur to me at the time that this was necessarily. You're, it's like you say, you just kind of accept it. That's part of this kind of oeuvre that you're you're reading, and it all kind of smushes together.
1: Yeah and you know you wouldn't as a child, well even as an adult probably, you wouldn't sit down and watch a film in which at the end the baddie puts on red hot shoes and has to dance until she dies and yet that's in Snow White (laughs) so (laughs) you know I think it's just funny that a lot of the stuff is quite horrific or it's quite overtly sexual you know a lot of the ancient Egyptian myths Isis and Osiris, very overtly sexual and you wouldn't let a child watch something like that and yet, because it's a myth, we're allowed to learn about it. So I loved that. I thought, um, I felt very subversive and like I was being given this little glimpse into the adult world. And it was very exciting for me and like a little bit frightening, but in a good way.
0: Did you, did that, so you mentioned kind of like going through a kind of like difficult teenage period, as so many of us do. Did, did that, how did your relationship to fairy tales change or did it change when... You became kind of like that little bit more... You start making that journey into the adult
1: world yourself. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, as an early teen, I just completely rejected fairy tales and kind of all the books of my childhood because I was obviously very into loads of loads of different children's books. I loved Roald Dahl. Um, I loved a lot of kind of animal books, like horse books and that type of thing. And I would just... As soon as I was a teenager, I was like, oh, I'm finished with that. I'm a grown-up now. And actually, it was a lot of the pop culture that I was into as a teenager. So, um, I was a, a teenager in the kind of late nineties. So a lot of it was the kinder whore and Courtney love. And, um, a lot of that, there was an artist called Mark Ryden who does these kind of, um, strange little girl pictures, but like, kind of murderous little girls you know kind of big eyes anime Mm -hmm. style but they're you know holding a bloody knife so that type of thing and I felt like a lot of the pop culture that I was into would use these very traditional or fairy tale type visuals but they would be very dark and I mean I was a goth like all of us want to be goths well I don't know about all of us I definitely wanted to be a goth when I was a teenager I was a bit of a shit goth but I tried tried my best um oh I'll be allowed to swear yeah, oh. yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just in case, just in
0: case. Yeah. I suddenly yeah. said that. I mean, that you're, you're go, not Ooh. allowed you're, you're yeah, you're not you're not allowed n- n- no no dissing Goths, but um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just dissing my own attempts at goth there. Um yeah, so I definitely wanted to have that kind of look. Um I loved all that stuff. So I think I then came back to fairy tales but it was always in this very kind of gothy way like this way of having more of the link between fairy tales and the the real dark side of them so then of course I was primed when in my early 20s kind of well kind of late teens early 20s when I was at uni I discovered a lot of fairy tale retellings modern ones so things like Angela Carter although I actually came to her quite late before her I read these two books in particular that had a huge impact on me. Um, And one was called The Rose and the Beast, which is by Francesca Lea Block. And another one is called Kissing the Witch by Emma Donoghue. And they had a huge impact on me. So they were kind of modern... Well, the the Francesca Lea Block one was kind of modern-day retellings of fairy tales, all set in L.A., so kind of very trendy, very cool. And then the Emma Donoghue ones were these queer lesbian retellings of fairy tales, and they just had a huge impact on me because I thought, oh, wow, this this sense of an ownership of a story. Look what they've done with it. I can, I can own this story. I can do whatever I want with it. So they, again, had just a really massive impact on me. I feel like a lot of the imagery that I consumed when I was a teenager had really a huge effect on me. I was really into um, MTV. Well, it was MTV2 at the time that I would watch a lot. And a lot of the visuals in the music videos were so inspiring to me actually that's what i wanted to do for quite a long time is direct music videos um i really like that the format of them uh the kind of length of them as well i feel like as a short story writer that type of length of narrative is really appealing to me so loads of stuff like
0: and they just loads of quite a lot. music videos have got that wonderful thing of having I'm, I'm sorry for using such like a wanky uncool term um I've just it's just who I am but like they've got quite and because I had an interview with um I had a chat with um I'm not blaming him but Andrew Cowan uh, on on Monday and mm-hmm. he, who studied under Angela Carter actually oh, at wow. but um uh he was but we talk about that idea of like s- semantic gaps and space for the reader to flow in and inhabit a story and make their own interpretations and the amazing thing about like music videos is you've got that combination of like a song which like sug- has lyrics and uh, a a melody which suggests a mood a tone and then you've got this video but like there's a lot of ambiguity mm-hmm. and there's a lot of just imagery and iconography and I always felt when I was watching those things I mean I, I remember you know I used to just go into my dad's study and read his copy of the Beatles illustrated lyrics and there was lots of kind of like weird pictures in there a lot of the songs I hadn't heard at the time but it allowed my imagination to kind of really flow in through all those kind of like mm. grikes and clefts and kind of like irrigate these weird landscapes that people had made for me
1: I love that semantic gaps See I still as an adult I love stuff That I don't really know what it is Like I've got I don't know what you would call this I really like Things that are spin-offs of other things But I haven't seen the original thing So you know like if there was a A spin-off novel of something Of a TV show yeah. I, would, I would read the spin-off novel But I haven't seen the TV show uh, so, you, so you don't
0: mean You don't mean like M- Mork and Mindy which is like. I haven't seen a, that. It's the Robin Williams vehicle where he's a. It's a TV show where he oh, plays yeah. an no, alien. I do that. And yeah. it's a spin off of Happy Days. Is
1: it? Yeah. There are aliens in
0: Happy Days? For one episode. Robin Williams appears for one episode as Mork in Happy Days and then it was made into a spin off. Oh. Sorry, I don't. There's I didn't, no do you know, reason for me that. to crowbar I didn't know that piece that. of
1: trivia into. <laughs> I, I quite like that. I've learned something today. No, but so, but so but it'll be you, things like you know, if there's like a, say there's a book about the the particular art of a video game. I'll I don't want really want to play the video game. but I want to look at the art of the video game. Or you so know, so you've
0: got all this stuff without without yeah. the context that anchors it, but it has this kind of strange, um, but it has it. it but it must ha- be because it has then this strange unity of theme right because it it all comes it all has an inner logic but you just don't know what that inner logic is well
1: exactly because the fun part to me is then I get to make up the inner logic so I, I get to see it's almost like you're only reading the footnotes of something and you get to say or you get to imagine what the body of the text is you're only seeing the notes or you're only seeing the kind of edges of something like you're only seeing the edges of a jigsaw and you're imagining what's in the middle and I quite like that
0: that's that's the kind of that seems to me like a really great description of what a lot of creativity is is like is finishing off it's like you find like a bit of a letter kind of like blowing down the street with the end torn off or the beginning mm, torn off. Mm-hmm. and to, to 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 kind of like end that kind of like that like yearning in your head for completeness you have to invent the first half
1: yeah I like that and I just I don't really like things that just give me everything I don't really like narratives that tie everything up in a nice neat bow at the end I mean of course I like it in the way that we all like it because it's very satisfying but there are certain books or certain films that at the time I really enjoy them and then later if someone says what was that about I'm like oh I've forgotten because it's all nightly, nicely tidied up at the end so then it's not an open loop in my head anymore so it just gets i'm like okay job done tick bye and it gets pushed away whereas if something is not not if it's completely nonsensical but if there's just some unanswered parts some unanswered questions it kind of keeps it in my head and it keeps me thinking about it so then it to me it's a much more vivid it feels more like a joint creative process between me and whoever wrote it or made it or painted it or whatever the situation is um and I like that. And I, I try and do that in my work. Obviously, we all want to tell a satisfying story. We don't want to have it just be random things occurring. So you want to tell a satisfying story, but I do try and keep some open loops just because I feel like it is a, like you said, it's a joint creative process. You know, you, you the reader and the writer work together to create this thing. So I try and leave space for the reader to inhabit the story themselves creatively.
0: But I think that... I, that's a great way of stepping into um talking about your first um your short story collection um I, well uh, because this is the you know the I guess this is your this is when you start kind of putting stuff together and then you you're you're published and I'd really like to talk about that and also but that also what you're describing sounds like it's you might might reject this this might feel like I'm being <laughs> sort of too complimentary but it seems like it takes a lot of bravery because you're essentially or or at least trust in the reader right because it, it requires holding back a little bit and that's scary especially when you're first writing and you want to kind of prove you know you talked about feeling like at first that writing was something that other people did and then you read these stories these uh retellings of fairy tales um that changed them and you felt like oh there's space for me here but it's scary to sort of when you're trying to prove you're, that you're allowed to write to other people to to not want to like throw it everything in in the kitchen sink to prove mm-hmm. I have thought of about this. Come on, guys. Um, and I just want to ask, how did you... How do you actually go about sort of leaving gaps? Because that seems like it's something that like I I... You know, people might be listening and going, well, all right, but
1: how do I... How do I know where to leave a space? <laughs> well, the way that I did it is, first of all, you write a bunch of stories where you don't leave gaps. And then you think, oh, they're not very good. I'll throw them away. And then you write a bunch of stories where you leave too many gaps. And then you think, well, that's not very good. I'll throw them away. And then hopefully, eventually, you find the right middle ground for you, which will be different for everyone, um, that's how I did it anyway you know I'm making it sound like it was my plan all along and it really wasn't it's just something that I've settled on from having written many hundreds of not particularly good stories and hopefully finally settling on some that are all right so yeah it's not it's not a grand plan and there's no formula that I'm aware of anyway it's just I imagine it's like cooking or something that you just you just know if it tastes right or you know if you're trying to make a display or today I did the new I volunteer at Oxfam and I did a new Halloween window this morning so Hmm. you know you just look at a display and you think oh that either looks balanced or it looks unbalanced and you just from experience you just learn if it looks right so for me the same with a story you just write a bunch of stories and you learn because either you give them to people and they go yeah I'm not an idiot don't I wish you wouldn't write a story to me like I'm an idiot. Or they go, listen, I've got no idea what's happening in this story. And that's how you learn. You learn to just parcel out the information in such a way that, you know, you want to be, it's on a tightrope and you can either slip into confusing or you can slip into boring. And what you want to do is try and be neither. You want to try and be somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, it's hard. It's really, it's, and you're, and you're right. Like it's, it's, it's not something that you can, it would be lovely if there. It would be lovely if there was a, a perfect formula, for it. and and maybe for some styles of um, story or novel, there is a little bit more of a, a formula. But if you're trying to do something weird and immersive, I'm not saying that's necessarily what you are trying to do, but you know, or a mysterious and have those spaces you're talking about, then then you then I guess you do have to just sort of occasionally sort of dip dip the ladle in and have a sip and see whether it needs some more salt mm-hmm, or not mm-hmm. can you can you talk a bit about um you sort of when you first uh got published and um what that was with and how that that transition from being someone who is kind of thinking about being a writer and doing bits and pieces to actually you know how mm. be Being published and having a book out?
1: Well, I mean, my journey, like I imagine many writers, it was not a clear series of steps at all. It was very much like two steps forward, three steps back, maybe five steps forward, one step back. You know, it was very much kind of back and forth. I never knew when it was happening. People often say, What was it like to write your first book? But the thing is, you don't know it's going to be your first book. I wrote um well novel wise I wrote three or four novels before I managed to get one published so you don't actually know that you're writing your first book and also with short stories I didn't know it was going to be my first book I wrote the stories individually um over the course of about six years in my 20s um and I wrote many many other stories so I probably probably in in the years of my 20s um I must have written 150 or so stories. And there's only 20 in the book. So most of them were quite bad. They were, you know, I had to practice, you know, you wouldn't, well, I wouldn't, I'm not very sporty. I wouldn't just immediately be like, I'm going to run a marathon today. You know, I would train, I would practice. I would do some shorter runs first. So it's, to me, that was the same thing. I was going to try a bunch of different things and maybe some of them would work. Some of them really wouldn't work, but that's fine because you still learn from them. Nothing's ever wasted with writing. Even if your story doesn't work, well, that's great. Now you've learned something that didn't work. That's very valuable information. Um, so yeah, over over the course of those years, I just wrote a lot of stories, um, and I saw a call for a prize, which was for a debut short story collection. And I thought I had never tried to put a short story collection together, even though I had over a hundred stories, because I thought oh, nobody publishes short story collections. Um, so I hadn't even tried and then I saw this and I thought oh, I've got some stories I can put something together um, so I just put a, put quite a few of the stories together that seemed to have a similar theme or kind of links between the stories and sent that in never thinking I would get anywhere with it and um, it won that, that contest and that's how my first book came out Um, But in the meantime, I had been writing novels as well. Um, I wrote quite a few novels that were fairly bad. I finally managed to write one that was um, good enough that I could kind of get past the barriers of of a couple of editors and a couple of agents, but it wasn't quite good enough. You know, it was good enough that they would read it, but they kind of said, you know, "You, you could write a very good book, but this is not it. Which, of course, at the time is hard to hear because you've just spent a year, two years writing this thing
0: was that and was that a process was that one of those things where they kind of gave you some feedback you tried to rewrite it a bit gave it back to them or or were they just saying to you not this but something in the future
1: yeah that's basically what they said and I knew they were right I think quite often well for me anyway I feel like quite a lot of the time I think maybe I can get away with this like I know it's not (laughs) I know it's not my best I know if I really pushed myself harder, I could do better, but maybe it's good enough and it's not, it's not good enough. If you can push yourself harder, why would you not push yourself harder? As long as you can do it safely, whatever your own um, mental health um, comfort zone is, obviously don't absolutely bash your head against the wall doing something. But, you know, I knew that I could have worked a bit harder and I just was being a bit lazy so I knew that they were right. I think maybe if I hadn't agreed with them, it would have been a bit harder, but I knew that they were right, that it wasn't the best that I could do. And I had been in a rush and I was so desperate. I remember that hunger, oh, it was agonizing, just that desperation. Cause I had been working so hard for so long. And I mean, you know, you're taking small steps forward. Maybe you're getting some, I had some stories in magazines. I had won some short story contests and it's great. And it's so encouraging and you need that to keep you going. But I would just think, oh, but why? Why can't I have a book? I want a book so badly. And you're just so hungry.
0: Did you ever suffer, when you're feeling that kind of hunger, did you ever suffer from a sort of jealousy of other writers?
1: Did I ever? Are you kidding? As if it's gone away. (laughs) 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course we do. You know, there's always going to be somebody who's working faster, working better, they're having more success, they're winning a prize that you wish that you had won. Of course, but that's, I've realized now that's it's just never going to go away. Of course it would. You know, every time a friend got a publishing deal, there were two sides of me that, of course, I was so happy for my friend because I could see how hard they had worked. But also, of course, I was dying inside. I was thinking, why? Why can they have that and I can't have it? And I didn't want to take it away from them. I just wanted to have it as well. And it's so hard at the time because you don't know when it's coming. Like, I would think... I would I was fairly confident that I would I would eventually get a book out because I worked really hard for a really long time and also I was getting feedback from people that was saying, you know, you, you can do this, you just haven't quite cracked it yet. But but yeah, you just don't know when it's coming.
0: Yeah, people aren't like leading you into a room and they're all they've like arranged chairs in a circle and <laughs> 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 and they weren't
1: like we need to we need to have a serious talk about you. Yeah. But I mean, but then again, it's not as if everyone I met was just applauding every time I walked in the room. I met plenty of people who hated my work and thought I was awful, um, and I still hear those voices in my head. You know, I I remember. Do you, do you, oh, sorry, hang on, wait, hang oh. on. I'm
0: not. I, I, you you met people who thought your work is was. In what I'm not, I mean, I'm not being facetious, but like, in, in in what context did you did did you was this in in in, in writing groups? Yeah, because I
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. you people gave you feedback. I mean, they that, they didn't say the words "your story is awful," but they don't have to. Do they, they don't have to. You can tell it was because they weren't saying things like because um, obviously, if you're in a workshop group, a, a useful comment would be. Um, you know, the the plot logic goes off the rails a little bit at the end here, or I'm not really sure that this character is convincing. Whereas this, I remember this one man in particular, um, he hated everything that I ever wrote. And he would say things like, it's just nothing. He would say, this story is, it's just nothing.
0: <laughs> oh my, yeah. Kirsty, that is the worst it thing I've ever heard someone say about mm-hmm. Well, well, I mean, but, well, well, fuck him because you you've got the last laugh. Fuck him! You've I've got, got four books out. <laughs> yeah, I've seen your poor quotes, uh, Kirsty. I would, I would, I, I would, I would sell my own grandma and and, <laughs> and chew off one of my own arms to um to have got some of the amazing uh, comments you, you you've had on your work. So yeah. so um. But no, it ra- was
1: quite. It was valuable actually because it made me realise because I was very tempted to change what I was doing to suit him because he didn't like. He didn't like that I was writing about women and kind of women's lives and women's issues, and he yeah, didn't just, like just nothing, basically. No, about personally. nothing. Yeah, it was nothing. Yeah, half nothing. Half the world is just nothing. 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 Half war, the human population. War,
0: the, the pain of war, and um, and uh, vintage motorcycles. Do you, that's do you know him?
1: That's
0: <laughs> what he wrote about. I'm yet. Yeah, well, do you actually know the... him? I don't know him no but that I've uh, having like edited over 100 manuscripts mm-hmm. um uh, for people I know of uh, uh, men of a certain uh, background and age who yes. um have an, have very set ideas about what a story is
1: That's exactly uh, that you could not have been more correct that is exactly what he thought and he thought I was a silly little girl who was writing silly little girl stories and I was tempted you know I'm a people pleaser and I was tempted to try and write a story to please not just him to please everyone but I mean that's impossible and I'm so glad that I stuck to what I thought was important.
0: Also I don't think men like him really actually buy very many books. (laughs) I I think they don't actually actually read that much except their own work so
1: that's I think that's actually very insightful yeah I think he just wanted to see himself reflected back in all of our work he just wanted us to write about him and an experience that was familiar to him and so he couldn't appreciate a story about an experience that was unfamiliar to him um which that's such
0: a shame because like that's one of the greatest joys of reading right Mm -hmm. is of course it's great to see yourself in in books and that can be very powerful but also to to do the thing that we can't do as humans which is to live a life not our own is such an amazing gift of fiction
1: of course I mean surely that's part of the reason that we read you know like you said at the beginning to to just not live your own life for a moment not not even necessarily that your own life is terrible but why would you not if you've got the option to live thousands of different lives through books why would you not want to do that can we this is such
0: a wonderful way of moving on to um talking about the the grace keepers and i've had to sort of hold back so we can talk about you know we can talk about the other stuff first because I would have loved to have just leapt straight in to um to talk about it um i really 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 enjoyed reading it i had such a time and i loved just even just like hanging out in <laughs> in the world that you've created, it's, oh, it's a, you. such an odd thing to say. But I think and I think that's something maybe peculiar to sort of fantasy as well. That's like part of a no, maybe historical fiction and um, any fiction with a great sense of place. But like that, one of the things that is a joy of it is you just get to hang out there um, in a place that's not somewhere like your own. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to just for people who haven't uh, read it yet? Um, And of course, everyone listening, I will put a link to um, all of uh, Kirsty's books in the show notes so you can click through and uh, check them out for yourself. Can you give us a a little idea of what
1: it's about? Yeah, of course. So the, the Grace Keepers, the short version is it's about a circus boat in a flooded world. And the slightly longer version is it's a love story between two women. So it's about North who... Um, is a bear girl so she dances with a bear who is only just tame he's always kind of on that border where he might um, revert to his wild nature at any moment so she she dances she travels around on a circus boat and dances with this bear Um, and then it's also about kalanish who is a grace keeper of the title and what that means is because the world is flooded When people die, they can't be buried on land because there's hardly any land left. So instead they're sunk down into the sea and above them is floated a bird in a cage. And the bird is known as a grace and the lifespan of the bird marks the mourning period for the person who has died. So when that bird dies, you can stop mourning for the person who has died. And Kalanish's job is to tend, to to lay people to rest in the sea and also to tend to these birds. And these two women meet, and it turns out that they have a lot more in common than they might have initially thought. So then the whole book is kind of them uh, coming together.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you? I, I mean I am like li- doing a version of where do you get your ideas? But can you tell us, <laughs> which I actually think I would defend as a mm-hmm. as a perfectly valid valid question. But where did you start to get the? Idea for this world, and especially those like really lovely, specific
1: bits of culture
0: that exist within the world?
1: Mm. See, I think it's actually, again, it's one of the questions that people slag off a lot, but again, I think it's quite a good question. I think the problem with the question is that every idea comes from a different place, so every story idea comes from somewhere different, so it's quite a difficult one to answer unless people are talking about something very specific. But I actually do know specifically where this idea came from um, and in my my first book the story collection which is called The Rental Heart there's a short story in that called The Grace and that was my starting off point for the novel and I remember where the idea for that came from and it was about a year after my dad had died and he died very suddenly and he was very young he was only 58 and um, I was out on a boat. And I saw um, a, a life boy, which was a, a light with a cage on top of it, obviously, so that the glass of the light wouldn't smash. But at first glance, it looked like a birdcage. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why there would be a birdcage at sea. And because obviously grief and mourning were very much on my mind still, I just had this idea that it would be a grave marker and that the bird would represent the person who had died and would represent the the period of mourning for them um and that was kind of the spark of the whole book really was this this image of this bird in a cage in the middle of the sea um which isn't a real thing by the way I I do get asked you know which myth is that from or is that some kind of practice in somewhere in the world and it may be but I don't as far as I know it isn't as far as I know it's not a thing that has ever happened or has ever been done I may be wrong and I just haven't come across it um but as far as I know, I just made it up. Um, but a lot of the stuff in the book comes from kind of English myth. Um, and I grew up um, in Staffordshire where there's a lot of myth stuff. And actually my school, my primary school was called Excalibur. <laughs> so there was mm. obviously we, we learned a lot of myth at school. And it felt very real to me because, you know, my school was called Excalibur. And we were led to believe that King Arthur had been in the area somewhere. So myth felt quite real to me. It felt like it had really happened. Um so a lot of that fed into the book. So in the book, um, the circus is called the Circus Excalibur and the Ringmaster's wife is called Avalon, which is from the King Arthur myth. And it's very subtle but part of the relationship between the ringmaster and his wife and his son is kind of taken from part of the King and, Arthur Myth.
0: And there's myth. a and there's a and there's a bear, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is you know that that's like Arthur means bear. Does, I, did I yes, imagine that? Yes, no,
1: that's true. And the, do you know, there's so much stuff that I didn't mean as well because I got this weird email that was from well a very pleasant email, but some twat wrote
0: to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that was a very nice email, and it was from someone saying, "Oh, this this is so clever because you've called the character." north and there you've also got calanish and if you go to where the calanish stones are if you look north then the constellation of the great bet and i was like i didn't mean any of that but i mean i wish i was that clever Holy shit. i did not intend that but i mean i if i was that clever i would be thrilled um so it's funny the way that things all come together and it's even things that i didn't really intend like i found out later that avalon so the island of avalon is the kind of um, afterlife in this, in the in the King Arthur legend. Um, but I found out later that Avalon actually means Isle of Apples. Yeah. And at the very beginning of the book, um, we meet the character of Avalon as she's eating an apple. Um, and obviously because there's hardly any... Was that lo- an
0: accident? Yeah, it
1: was. Yeah. Holy I didn't realise. I didn't realise. No,
0: but, but the thing is, okay, so like, I don't want to get too... I don't want to get too sort of like mystic about it. But I guess when you... There's so many signs and signifiers. As soon as you start dealing with myth and fairy tales, so many objects become imbued with this significance. Mm-hmm. We are... It, that, that it's actually more, I think, a... It's just the way that that kind of text encourages us to to read it. And we understand that we're reading on... We can read on more than one level. and and And, and so even when these things are unintentional, I think you're kind of like pl- you you are kind of plumbing into this these archetypes and this secret sort of code where those kind of happy accidents are much more likely and maybe mm-hmm. that some of them come intuitively.
1: And I just think as well we absorb so much and even if we're not consciously aware of things of course they come into our creative process. Like I hadn't realized when i was writing this book that when i was a teenager i absolutely loved the philip pullman books the northern lights trilogy and of course that's all about a girl and a bear and i hadn't made that conscious connection at all but of course when i sat down to write my book from having read and loved that book you know everything that we read everything that we love everything that influences us i think it's all inside us somewhere and it might come through in a way that we're not really conscious of so probably i did read somewhere that avalon was island of apples and i just forgot about it but it was in there somewhere i think everything that we learn stays in our heads somewhere
0: but isn't it amazing that when it comes that's the beauty of writing is there and then it, when it comes out it kind of comes out in this something that feels very like magic
1: it does feel like magic it's exciting the creative process i mean it's Agonizing sometimes it's horrible, <laughs> but it, it does feel like magic. And sometimes you have that moment where it just comes together. You just you you realise that all these things that you've done tie together in a way that you didn't plan, but some part of you did plan it. like I don't believe in a muse. I don't believe in any kind of external force at all. I just have huge respect for the human brain, and I think we. Do things without realizing it constantly, constantly. So I always think, you know, when a story comes together and we think, wow, I really didn't plan that. Like a, you did plan it. You maybe just didn't consciously plan it, but you knew what you were doing deep down, I think. Mm.
0: Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's in um, Ursula Le Guin's book of essays, uh, The Language of the Night. That's where it kind of takes the title from is uh, that fantasy writing fantasy does and myth and fairy tales use this the language of the night this language that's a little bit more this kind of way of talking in symbols in archetypes in dragons and swords and Mm. magic Mm. rings that is plunging into the plung, is kind of plumbing into these young jungian archetypes and i realize how much of a wanker i sound as these words are coming out of my mouth but uh, but of course Ursula Le Guin doesn't comes across as incredibly in, in entrancing and erudite when she talks about it because she's brilliant but um but you the the, the these things that you are kind of throwing open the hatches and 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 kind of calling to the strange beast down in the hold of the ship to kind of come up and 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 pilot it overnight to some strange island like there's this there's this sense in which you are handing over i think when you are writing fantasy if you are really doing it if you are if you're properly buying into it um which i i don't know maybe maybe you wrote this in an incredibly cynical way, but like my impression is like that actually in that by kind of giving yourself to it, you do engage more than maybe some other types of fiction, mm-hmm. um those deep kind of like intuitive recesses of the subconscious brain
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean I don't do anything cynically, really, I am painfully sincere. Um, nothing that I do is sort of market. Minded or anything. Also, because when I was writing this novel, I didn't think it was going to be my first novel. I'd already written four novels that had gone nowhere. So, as far as I was concerned, I was like, "All right, then, let's give it another go. Maybe I'll crack it this time. Probably not, but I'll give it a go." So, I didn't know. You you don't know what's going to happen with a book. Was it hard to write? I mean, they're all hard, aren't they? They're horrible. Why would anybody write a book? It's a nightmare. Um, Yeah, it was hard, but I mean, it was amazing and horrible. At
0: the same time, can you break? Can you? Would you mind elaborating that on a bit? Because uh, on that for a bit, because I know that some people who listen have a real, you know, at the beginning of their writing journey. That makes it sound ominous, doesn't it? But you know that they've they've written a couple of tiny little things, but they've never sat down to try and write a book. And you're saying it's horrible why you would. And I know you're kind of. I can hear you like laughing. I know you're joking partly, but I also know because I've written myself that you're not in any way joking Hmm. so what does that mean that it's a horrible process why would anyone
1: do it and at the same time it's amazing well i mean i should probably yeah of course i am joking i should put a caveat on there's a lot worse jobs that you could do i'm not working down a mine like i don't mean to be a little you know soft little pixie being like oh woe is me i have to sit at a computer and type things it's obviously not hard in that way um but it's hard because you don't know what you're doing like for this one in particular, I don't know what I'm doing now, you know, I'm writing my sixth book now and I still sit down and go, what am I doing? How do I do this? I I genuinely forgot how to write. I sat down to start this novel and I remember thinking, I don't know how to make a sentence. I don't understand how I can write words and then it is people doing things, saying things telling a narrative. How does that work? It's just 26 letters. That doesn't make sense. I genuinely was like, I don't understand how to do this anymore. But it's like that every time. And for the first one in particular, I just didn't know what I was doing. And every day, for me anyway, I would sit down and think, why would anyone be interested in this? The ramblings of me? Why is anyone going to care about this world that I've made up? I think a surface boat sounds great, but is it, am I the only one that think that sounds great? And the thing is that you don't know, you never know. And it takes a really long time to write a book. Even if you're a fast writer, it's a long process. It's a real marathon. Um, So that's what's hard about it, I think, is you don't know what you're doing. You don't know if you're doing the right thing. You don't have a boss standing over you or a teacher giving you a gold star saying, well done, you did it right. You never know if you're doing it right. And no one can really tell you until you're finished. And that's, you have to really have a lot of faith in yourself to be able to put in that much effort and time into something when you just don't know if it's working or not.
0: Okay, so that's what's what's horrible. Mm -hmm. What's amazing?
1: What's amazing is that you get to make a world out of nothing and it's real and then you can open the door and let people into it. And that to me is, just worth everything. It's worth every hard day. It's worth every second of self doubt. To have someone say, "Hey, this world that you made, I played in it, and it was fun." Oh my god, that's worth everything.
0: I, you, when you phrase it like that, I could just feel. You know, I le I, I you know, I'm a dad now. I live. I live an incredibly monk-like existence in terms of. Um, what I take into my body but I could just feel every single like serotonin receptor <laughs> in my head like firing at once like I just was like the power the power mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. it's yeah it's kind of it's it, it's it's a mate do
1: you are you are you a do you do you consider yourself a perfectionist oh god yeah absolutely um yeah definitely and I mean no no book is perfect and that is actually I think part of the struggle of when particularly as a um, quite a beginning writer, that you probably love books, you probably can recognise what a good book is, what a good story is, what a good sentence is, but perhaps your skills aren't to the point that you can create to that level a great story or a great sentence. So then you see this huge gap between what you're capable of producing but what you know is good. And that's hard, and I, th- I feel like the further you get on, the more that gap closes. But I don't think it ever closes completely. You're always going to feel like you could be better than you are because we can all be better than we are. Of course we are. That's humanity, isn't it? We're constantly striving for something different, for something better. Um, So I think that's quite difficult as well, that you, you know what you're capable of, but we can never quite get there because the way, to me anyway... Before I write a book, I just think about it a lot, so for a good couple of years actually, I think about a book, kind of daydream about it, maybe try and put the characters together, try and put the world together, try and think about the shape of it, the kind of texture of it, what's the atmosphere of it going to be like, what are the sentences going to be like, you know, things like that. So I really inhabit it in my brain. But the thing is, ultimately, when you sit down to write, it's words on a page. And it's really difficult to try and convey this very detailed, multi-dimensional, technicolor, you know, full sound thing that's inside your head, to try and put that into words can be a real struggle. I mean that's that's fiction, isn't it? But sometimes it it falls short. Because you have this thing in your head and whatever words you manage to get down on the page, they're not going to quite achieve what you're seeing in your head because they can't, because they're words. But you have to trust that. And I actually, now over the years, I've come over the years as if I'm so ancient, but um, I've come to realize (laughs) that actually there's a magic in that because again, like you were saying about the gap, that's the gap. That's the wonder. Yeah, I have this thing in my head. I can picture North in my head. I can picture Callanish in my head and the bear and the boat and, you know, the dance that they do. I can picture it all. And probably what I've managed to put down in words isn't exactly what I'm seeing in my head, but the joy of it is then the reader gets to make their own picture in their own head. And that's, I think, better. That's better than if I had absolutely described to the letter everything that I was seeing in my head, because I find that quite boring. I like for them to be able to engage creatively as well. So yeah, this yeah, is me it, trying to think this through and trying to let go of my perfectionism a little bit. That's,
0: that's exactly the words that were coming into my head when you were saying, actually, we're like letting go. It's really hard, isn't it? Because you think you, you, the idea is you want to sort of, that the, the language is some kind of sort of data stream the, through which you're trying to kind of convey the most perfect version of what's in your head when actually actually it's not it's a it's it's a set of toys that allow them to play the same game that you've been playing, but to let them play it, you've got to let go of some of the control and it's hard it's hard to make that leap because what you want because what you want to do is to say, hey, I made some amazing things with these cool blocks. Mm. And now here they are, but I'm not going to put it together. I'm not going to rob you of the joy of seeing the kind of, I think you're going to put this together and make this kind of tower, but you might make, you might make a boat out of it or you might make a, something completely different. And it's, and it's hard to not see that what you've done is just like clumsily mistranslated your own dream mm-hmm. when actually you're kind of, what you're actually providing someone with is this amazing bed for them to kind of like fall asleep and dream a kind of similarly themed dream.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, completely, because you're not really letting someone into your dream. Yeah, you're just letting them have their own dream along similar lines.
0: Yeah, it's it's it is really hard. But then, do, do, have you ever found, we, we sort of mentioned this actually, that... That's the other thing that language does and that it does when you're translating it down to the page, is you get these things where the story sort of tells things that you didn't intend that are extra. That add stuff that you that, that are more, that 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 you and working with language, it becomes a kind of collaboration. Um so you had all those extra things with like Avalon and the the Apple and um Calanish and North and um all of those things that suddenly, by complete accident, those those things are more than was what was in your head. So it's kind of crazy to think. Like in some ways, not only did you you might not have got the dream that was in your head, but you actually got a lot of stuff extra that wasn't there. You <laughs> gave people extras that you not, even you, the writer, didn't have.
1: Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. See, I like. I like to think it's a, it's all about the reader. Like, I never tell a reader that their interpretation is correct or incorrect. Because, you know, I'm sure you've had this. Someone comes up and says, oh, I think, you know, it's about this. Or I think that this thing happens. Is that right? And I'm always like, if you think it's right, then it's right. And that sounds like I'm being glib, but I'm not. I just firmly believe. It doesn't really matter what I intend. All I can give anybody is the words on the page. And if they choose to interpret those words in a particular way... Then that's excellent. Then that is what we should do because we all come to a book with ourselves, right? We all come with our own histories, our own reading histories, our own life histories, our own knowledge, our own experience, our own interests. And I just think that's great. Like I some sometimes people say to me, Oh, I just wish the whole book had been set at the graceyard with Callanish. And then I have other people say, Oh, I didn't really like the graceyard part. I just wish the whole part had been at the circus. And it was just about North and the bear. And it's just, people bring different things to it. People are interested in different things. And like you say, with the blocks, we can't choose how people put that together. But that's the joy of it. That's why reading fiction, I think, is a collaborative process.
0: Yeah, and as soon as you have any more than one character, people, are gonna, people start picking favourites. Mm-hmm. It's like, come on, which is nice. I mean, I guess they're engaging with it, but... It's funny, funny to me how how people then think that think that uh, like a helpful comment is uh, is telling you is telling you that half half your book wasn't really <laughs> to their taste, and you have to kind of keep a smile on your face. And go, oh, that's really thank you. Yeah. But you're right; like it's very and it's very gracious of you to not to to recognise that they were still you know that they're not, they're not they're not having fun in the wrong way just because they are engaged with certain bits over other bits.
1: No, and I think we you, you don't. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: Um, uh, you you go ahead first, and then I'll I'll come in with my supplementary
1: question. Well, I was just going to say, I think sometimes we don't really know what we're writing. I mean, we know, we know what we think we're writing, but other people may interpret it differently. So, for example, when I wrote the Gracekeepers, you know, my I had had some stories published, and I I think was perceived as if I was perceived as anything, it was a quite a niche writer. You know, I was a queer writer. I was a feminist writer. I was a fantastical writer. So, I fit into this certain niche, which was like not mainstream. You know, I wasn't going to be a Richard and Judy book club book, but that was okay with me because other books suit that niche, and I suit my niche. So I thought that's yeah, fine. but, the, but doing- the Richard and Judy
0: niche is like is is like sh- dedicated shelves in every WH Smith. <laughs> uh th- 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 like hundreds of thousands of sales like you you say oh there's like a niche and there's a niche but like one of them gets like tv time and reviews and one of them is like oh you're writing this kind of weird little thing this yeah. you know like the guy said it's it's nothing or at least it's or it's somehow indulgent but like see, the, I... what you're writing is somehow indulgent and what those books are doing it's not that that's equally valid they're actually more... But that is the kind of thing that actually gets me really fucked off. And it's how we, like, internalise that thing as well. Do you know what I mean? See, I, that, I quite that, liked
1: I'm, it. Maybe because I was a teen goth, I quite liked being niche. I quite liked being an outsider. Um, I thought it was cool. I thought, I don't want to be mainstream. I want to be the weird goth girl in the corner. That's who I am. It's,
0: but- it's difficult for me because um, uh, my mum tripped over a... Um, uh, uh, an Alsatian in a pub in Cirencester, and um, broke her well broke her teeth and um, she was helped up by Richard Madeley, um who was there with Judy Finnegan and they were both really really nice to her so I can't quite get into the counterculture of being against <laughs> Richard and Judy because they were really really lovely to my mum and oh. emailed her to check she was all right and so I've always like been like oh they do seem quite nice. No, 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 I'm, not,
1: I'm not against them by any means. I just didn't think it was for me. Like other people are into it. And that's cool. It's like anything that I'm not into. I'm not into long distance running or Catholicism or, um, you know, reality TV shows, but people are into them and that's cool. And I don't think it's better or worse than what I'm into. So it's not that I thought it, I was above it. I just thought, that's not my niche and that's cool like we all have our own niches that we fit into and that's not mine however the the point is that i was wrong basically so i wrote this novel that i thought here's my little kind of niche fantastical feminist queer novel that will be in my little fantastical niche feminist queer thing you know and then you know the book sold and it was on it was like radio 2 book club it was a waterstones book of the month it was in heat magazine you know So I thought, oh my God, we don't know what we're doing. We think we're doing a certain thing. We we think that we're doing this weird little niche thing that the average reader isn't gonna be into. And I just think it's bullshit, actually. I think the average reader just wants a good story and they don't really care if it's set on a circus boat or it's about queer women or they don't care. They want a good story. So I think there's a real temptation to try and fit ourselves into what we perceive to be the mainstream. But that actually, it's not true.
0: Yeah and 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 then what happens is when you write a book like this it's like it's like in a zombie movie where people look out over the over the city that's kind of like been uh, du- you know been dark for weeks and then they see like a they see like an SOS light flashing in the distance and they go holy <laughs> shit there's someone else out there like that's yeah. the thing and i think that's why people can have really can really fall in love with books that don't, I guess, look like what we think of as being uh, standard. But I mean, it's also true of something like Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, there wasn't there wasn't like a huge market in in in, in sort of uh, pseudo fan fiction BDSM, and then suddenly everyone was re- reading that kind of thing, right? <laughs> exactly. And everyone was like, I yeah, I I, I want I want want some of this slightly awful kink
1: right like it's it's it's, nobody knows really i 100 percent agree and i think to think of being of as the mainstream as being a certain way i think is i think it's reductive i don't think it's true at all i think the average reader wants a variety of different things they don't want just the same thing over and over again I i think it's a bit snobby to for you know people who say that i think they're being a bit snobby actually i think mo- most readers are quite smart it did,
0: maybe do tell me if i'm wrong but it feels like it took you a while to get there because when that guy said this is you know this is this is just kind of nothing part of you was mm. like oh yeah i am oh, i am writing sort of self-consciously weird stuff i am sort of not not fitting in i am kind of doing writing wrong maybe i should take you know take a completely new direction um so it feels to me like you'd part you'd partially at least at first internalized that as being that it, it wasn't that hard for someone to convince you that 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 might be true that what you were writing was a bit was a bit odd
1: oh of course I mean if someone criticizes something about you that you don't already think is true it doesn't I don't think it really bothers you because it doesn't it doesn't hit a bruise where if someone has found something that's already damaged and presses it, of course it's going to hurt, of course. Otherwise I would have instantly forgotten what he said. Um, But because I already thought that it was true, of course it got to me. And I think, I mean, we all, I think, feel that pull of like, oh, we could be more successful if we did X thing. You know, I I think, oh, maybe, maybe my books would be more successful if they were about a man and a woman and not two women because there are more straight people in this world than queer people but that wouldn't be true to me it wouldn't be the story that I want to tell like I honestly have maybe this is naive but I've never compromised what I want to say in a book and perhaps I would have more mainstream appeal if I did compromise certain things but I don't think so I think we just have to do what we do because I think readers know when something isn't genuine, and I don't think that they like it. Or you might have, or you might have, you might be quite capable
0: of churning out stuff that has, means nothing to you. Um, and you would have to cart that, those books around with you all your life, reading them out to people, <laughs> people coming up to you and going, Oh, Kirsty, I'm, you know, I, I read some of your earlier stuff, a bit weird, didn't really get it, but I love, <laughs> I love your, this amazing, uh, this amazing Second World War romance you you wrote, where the man goes behind enemy lines on his on his um, triumph motorbike and uh, and, uh, mm. and falls falls in love with the uh, sexy French woman. I think it's so so good, and I thought the f- and, and, and you you know you and it, they it, it's not that there's anything wrong with that kind of narrative,
1: but you would have just you would feel nothing. Yeah, and I would the thing is I wouldn't do that well because. I don't believe it in my heart and people who do believe that story in their heart will write it wonderfully because they believe it, but I don't, so I wouldn't do it well. So I, I, I guess it's also that I don't, I am a perfectionist and I don't want to do a shit job. So I feel like if people, not my books aren't going to be everyone's cup of tea, but that's okay because what is nothing is everyone's cup of tea. Some people don't even like tea. So, you know, you can't you can't have th- something that suits everyone. So at least I can stand behind what I wrote and say, do you know what? Maybe it's not for you and that's okay. But I was trying something. I was trying to say something that I thought was real and true and important and maybe it's for you and maybe it's not. But at least I can, like you say, I can cart my books around and hold them up and say, I believe this. Wow. And can you, um,
0: I was wondering to sort of, um, not not that um, everyone listening is sort of wants to r- ruthlessly strip mine your years of graft purely for um, <laughs> their own gain and they're like, all right, fine, Kirsty, we're all really happy for you, but like, would tell us the stuff that is going to make us be able to do books. And actually, I think loads of that, actually, of course, is, am- I, th- I know people are going to be so inspired by just that permission. I'm just, re- I'm actually really thankful that you've said all that because... I think it's so important for people to hear because it's true, and it takes some of us a long time to get to that level of acceptance where we can go, All right, I'm just gonna fucking just go for this. I don't care if people think I'm stupid because I love this in my heart, and I think that takes it's a wonderful place to get to, even though, of course, like you say, it doesn't make the perfectionism go away because now it matters. Mm-hmm. Now you're writing something you care about. You don't want to fuck it up, you know. So that can be hard. Can yeah. you talk, I just wondered if you could talk about any lessons that you've learned from this period of um, retreat that you've been on. Um, any things about the writing process that are still fresh in your mind that you might be able to um, share with us, however fragmentary?
1: Oh, God. I mean, I have to say the thing about accepting who you are and what you do is I wouldn't say I'm there I'm say I would say it's something that I'm working on I think I've taken steps towards it but I I'm not there and I, maybe I'll never get there maybe maybe we never get there then what do we do we just die <laughs> once we've accepted ourselves like once we've achieved in a piece what then nothing so I don't think we ever really get there um but all we can do is keep trying to get there um I mean that The main thing that I try and tell myself is just do what you do. Just do the thing that you do. Maybe people are going to like it and maybe they're not, but you still have to do it because, you know, best case scenario, you, you write something that you don't really believe in that you didn't really care about and people love it. It's always going to, like you say, it's going to ring false for you every time. Every time someone says, I loved your book, a part of you is going to go, why?
0: <laughs> In your heart, you're going to be like really you're resenting them go, and going, you, you idiot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you will. You'll think they're an idiot. Whereas now, like, again, like, even if someone says, I really hate your book, I'll be like, well, that's cool. Like, it's not for you. I don't, like, I don't think it's poor quality. I don't think it was written cynically. It, I tried my best. And if it's not for you, then that's okay. Maybe something I write in the future will be for you, or maybe it won't be. And that's okay. There's enough books, there's enough writers that there will be something that that person loves. But I mean, again, th- you've got me on a good day. So maybe next week I'll be like, oh God, I'm a shit writer. <laughs> what am I doing? So I don't think we ever really, you know, I do mentoring as well. And someone asked me recently, um when will I get past the self doubt? And I was like, I mean, you tell me because I haven't got there yet. So. I don't know if we ever get there, but then I also feel like what is the, so, so, okay. One of my number one piece of advice would be just do, do the thing that you do, like learn who you are as a writer, which you can only learn by writing a ton of stuff and getting some hopefully helpful feedback on what's working and what isn't. So learn what you want to say and how you want to say it. And then just keep trying, like keep constantly pushing yourself, keep trying new things, allow yourself the space, the mental space to just try something. And if it doesn't work, just don't beat yourself up because it's always part of the process that you just try something, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. And it's hard at the time because you think, well, I've just worked really hard on this. And yeah, maybe you did, but that's okay because whatever is happening today is setting you up for what's happening tomorrow. And maybe you write something today that's not amazing, but that's okay because you needed to write the thing today to write the thing that you're going to write in six months, to write the thing that you're going to write in a year. So we're just constantly learning and growing. So it's just, don't be obsessed always with the product. Think about the process. Don't be obsessed always with the destination. Enjoy the process of it. Cause I, now when I look back, I, I was so hungry to get published. I was so desperate to get a book out. And then when my book was coming out, I was so desperate to get to the next thing and to get a better thing and I don't know I didn't really slow down and enjoy it enough so just enjoy the whole thing because now I look back really fondly on my pre-published years and I think god what freedom that I could say whatever I wanted on twitter and I could guarantee that nobody would ever ask me about it because I had about five followers and it was great and I could write anything I wanted And I didn't hear the voice of a snarky Guardian reviewer in my head (laughs) saying it back to me. And it was amazing. Just the freedom of it. It didn't feel like freedom at the time. It felt like I was screaming into the void and nobody was listening to me, but I look back on it really fondly and I didn't, it's hard to appreciate it at the time, isn't it? Because you're so, you're so hungry for it, but I kind of wish I had, but maybe that's the type of thing you can only say from a distance. I think everything you've said has
0: been resonating with me Uh, and so I've tried just not to be jumping in going yes 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 that's true but um I think I think I've had to go through the process with sort of writing my second book of of yeah I when I wrote the first one the I only finished the first one that got published the honours I only managed to do that because I finally was just like I'm probably not going to get published and that was what allowed me to write what I wanted to rather than and with and then the pressure was off finally, and I got to just write and uh, and then the second one I felt huge amounts of pressure and I've had to reteach myself to take joy in the process, like you said, and it took me a while and it, and it, I had to give myself permission to fart about and write badly, and that is always and I think it's always a a little bit of a up down process because as you give yourself acceptance that what you're writing is going to be shit sometimes. You start to write more, and the more you write, the more chance you've got of writing something good. Mm-hmm. Then you write something and go, "Oh, I'm this is surprisingly good," and then you go, "Oh, maybe I've cracked it." Then you go, "Oh, I've cracked it! Finally, I'm writing good mm-hmm. stuff." And then you write something and go, "This isn't good stuff. I'm shit. What have I done?" And then you have to <laughs> let go again and kind of go through a grieving process. Uh, it's it's it, it's a constant it's a constant yeah process.
1: And but then did did you find the second novel? actually harder because i thought it would be easier but it wasn't it was hard so i found
0: it easier right up until the week that the honors came out and then and i didn't yep. really make a connection at the time because of course you do go and do book events you're kind of doing different things publicity wise but i just kind of stopped and then when i tried to start again i really found it incredibly hard and then it was just like oh my god going to the Laptop each day to write was it was just like I had two years of burning cystitis of the pen, where I would just do these tiny, tiny little burning wheeze of like a hundred words and then hate every moment. Sorry for using. That. I have felt like God. What a metaphor. Yeah. But like it's it's just like it was just it was horrible and I hated it. I hated it and I hated it and I hated myself as well and I was really 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 miserable. Um And I just felt like I was failing everyone around me and awful. And it's just taken a process of going, well, either I'm going to give up writing or I've got to go back and work out why I did this in the first place. And it's for all those reasons you've Mm. said. It's about the process rather than the product. It's about sitting down and just being amazed that we can kind of just bullshit and stuff comes out.
1: I know can you? isn't that crazy that you just make like my wife so she's got like a I I would refer to as a real person's yeah. job so she's a, she's a teacher she works with um children with um severe and complex needs so it's like a real a serious grown-up job and you know sometimes she she respects my work so much and she's always supported me completely but sometimes she's like just give yourself a break you know you literally make things up for a living and I was like fuck I do I need to appreciate how magical that is. Literally, I just make things up. Because sometimes I say that as a joke. You know, if someone says, I really liked your book, I go, "Oh, thanks. I made it Mm. up. And but see, I actually think that's really magical that I made up this thing. I made up this place. I made up all these people. And yet people pay me money to be like, tell me about this thing that you've made up, which is like my dream. See, if someone had said to me as a child, one day you'll just make things up and get paid for it, I would be like, no, that's crazy don't that's impossible that's not a job well maybe at five I would have thought it was a real job but 10 I wouldn't have believed that that was a real job that really existed but it is so for all I'm saying oh it's hard and the self-doubt and the you know various things are difficult just the wonder of that the wonder of just you get to make stuff up and then share it with people that's my dream life Kirsty, thank you so
0: much for coming on the, for coming on the, for coming on the podcast and chatting to me. It's been such a, without wanting to be too so schmaltzy, it's such a, like a privilege to get to uh, listen to you. Uh, you know share some of the things you've been through and talk about your writing and um really really genuinely inspirational thank you so much for your time and for coming on
1: oh thank you i feel like we could have chatted all day so thank you very much i really enjoyed it
0: yeah um and um for everyone listening i will put links as i said before in the show notes to Kirsty's books so you can uh, click through and order them if you can't get yourself to a uh your local bricks and mortar bookshop to um order them in and uh please do and uh, and dive into a world of uh of just really really cool shit it's really <laughs> lovely you just like it's a real grace keepers is a really good book to have just on the bedside table so you can just kind of you'll you'll be going to bed at sort of seven thirty at night to just be able to have a good long uh, run with it um And uh, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful week of writing and I will see you again soon.